Are you an ambitious, driven entrepreneur starting to feel overwhelmed, maybe a little trapped by your business? Well, I have a solution for you. It is the five-day bottleneck to breakthrough challenge, where in an hour a day, we will give you the roadmap, the blueprint, the treasure map to where you can find yourself with more free time, more freedom of money, and a more valuable business. Hope to see you soon www.bottlenecktobreakthrough.com. Hello and welcome to The Real Bottom Line. Today, my guest is Giles Crouch, who is managing partner at NordSparks, but also has the intriguing title of digital anthropologist. We're gonna talk about innovation and research today. This is The Real Bottom Line where we tell entrepreneurial stories about true grit and perseverance from frontline business owners themselves. Now, let's get started. Giles, welcome to the show. Hey, Wendy, thank you. Lovely to be here. So excited. Um, where did, what's your journey that ended up in this innovation and research space? Like what got you here? Wow. Hey, that's a great question. You know, so really back in the 1980s, and I got involved uh, in a small way with a company that was bringing uh, cotton clothing to Atlantic Canada. It was called Cotton Ginny and uh, had cotton banana for men, cotton ginny for women, cotton ginny for kids, obviously, who that was for. And then we had some uh, sort of a, a, a gift store, if you will, and smoke shop that we had in different shopping malls. So we, we grew to about 21 uh, stores all around Atlantic Canada. And Eventually, for various interesting reasons, that business wound down. Some parts of it was sold off, and then I kind of went on this journey to um, to figure out what to what to do as as next step. And I was fascinated with technology, so I actually mm -hmm. started selling uh, phone systems, like business phone systems and, oh and voicemails. Yeah, I sold one of the big. It was a company called Centigram. It was a, a two gigabit hard drive. And it was one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. So, you know, for a phone system. Well, a voicemail system, not just oh. the phones. The phone system, you know, you had to add on to that one. That was mm -hmm. probably about another eighty, ninety thousand dollars. So, but it was it was a fascinating learning experience. And and uh, in in one sale, it was a, a medium sized business. And and um, I went in, and they were saying, "Well, we're going to lay off our receptionist now because we're putting in this this voicemail and auto attendant." I was like. I was crushed. I'm like, wait a sec, someone's losing their job. And then I asked the, the president of the company, I said, I, I don't feel good about doing this sale. Someone's losing a job. And I, and so I started asking him a bunch of questions. I said, well, well, what else does she do? And he described all these other things. And I said, well, it sounds to me like you've got an office manager, not a receptionist. And he thought about that and he came, he said, well, hang on. And he came back about 10, 15 minutes later. And he said, uh, he said, so we just made her office manager. We're not going to lay her off now. <laughs> <laughs> and but that's the the quest for the perfect question started <laughs> yeah exactly and that and it went back to my anthropology roots where I'd, I'd done my my education and it was really about you know the best uses of technology are when it brings out the human in us um mm. so i i went on and, and i got involved in internet telephony for a while i taught a course at saint mary's university and uh, and along came the internet in the uh, in the mid '90s, and I got in, uh, involved with a startup that was my first real startup, and we were building uh, franchises for the internet, uh, and it was sort of like what you would call today uh, a community page on Facebook. 
but you know back then it was hard coding and you couldn't just enter stuff social media didn't even exist you know if people wanted to make a post they either had to fax it to us email it to us or mail it to us (laughs) and then we had to hard code it onto the page so it was but it was really fun we sold that business in about 18 months it was the start of the dot-com boom and, uh, and then I slipped into another startup. Uh, oh, but I was also concurrently, I, I did this uh, small startup, uh, which was selling, um, it enabled photographers, professional photographers to easily upload their photographs uh, to news media outlets and sell them. And we would take a cut of the transaction. And uh, we sold that business in about 10 months. Um, so then I went on to a company called Solution Inc, where we did a whole bunch of things and eventually figured out um, that a great business model was connecting people to the internet in hotel rooms, mm. and convention centers. So that company still exists to this day. Uh, but, you know, companies change over time and I changed and I actually got recruited uh, by a, a company called Info Interactive. And uh, that was internet call manager. So this is again dial-up days, right? You're on the phone, and and you're or you're on the internet, and a little screen pops up, and and it tells you um, uh, who's calling with caller ID, and you can either hang up, send it to voicemail, or take a call. So we uh, we had a number of telcos around the world, uh, mostly in North America, and grew the business. It was a public company, and I led the uh, the marketing communications as well as investor relations. It was my first experience in, in a public company too, which was fascinating. And uh, so I was more of an entrepreneur there and helping them to, to innovate with a product. And I left there uh, and joined a startup um, where we had a body scanner. It was really cool. And you went into this, this big machine and it scanned your, your body measurements and output them where you could um, sew these custom patterns. And uh, brought that across North America. It was, it was a fascinating uh, tool. It still exists in some form today. Um, but I, you know, that, that model changed and I got recruited into the world of, of medical devices, uh, still technology. Mm. And I traveled around the world um, with deactivated HIV in my luggage. <laughs> so and I was like, okay. <laughs> I was in China and Africa and Latin America. I mean, really deep into cities, these fascinating places. It was a wonderful way to see the world. It was the Middle East. And um, a few, I was there for a few years, but it was more of a, you know, internal and, and it was very much an innovation role as well as marketing. But, um, but I, I was exhausted. I was traveling 80% of the time. And, you know, my kids were like, who's this funny guy that shows up at the dinner table every few weeks, you know? Right. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I made that call. I, I left because uh, I was absolutely exhausted and went on to start up a uh, an, anal- an analytics company, um, which uh, which we ran for uh, several years, and where it was mostly focused on analyzing social media for foreign and public policy uh, work, which was quite fascinating. Again, into some really interesting parts of the world, and we did some really groundbreaking uh, research uh, projects. So, you know, that's that's funny. That's sort of my entrepreneurial journey. And then you, you have that moment where you sit back and you, you start to do some reflection. I, I think it's such an important part of being an entrepreneur. You, ha- you have to sit back every now and then and, and you have to reflect, okay, what have I done? What's been the common threads through everything that I've done? And, you know, anthropology in terms of thinking, you know, human-centric, I, you know, marketing around the world at a senior level and bringing new technologies to market. Um, so I and, and then doing all the social media analytics and, and all that research. So that really led me to realize 
boy, I've really been at the forefront of innovation. I love innovating. It's so fascinating when you, you can take a product or a service or an idea, and then you bring it into market, right? And, and it's, that's a rigorous process. Um, so I love innovation. I love doing the research because of what you uncover as insights, and that's foresight analytics um, and the anthropology. So you blend all those together, and you, you're really talking innovation. That's what I love. That's Absolutely. amazing. I want to get into that in a second. My next question, though, is you've been involved, obviously, in some really interesting startups and that have, you know, flipped and been bought out very quickly. Yeah. As you in your terms of reflection, what were the commonalities of either the business model or the people that ran them, the things they did that made them successful? Was it just that they were innovative or was it more about how they brought that innovation to market? Like what would you attribute their success to? Well, yeah, an innovation can be a, it can be a great idea, but then actually making it work uh, so that it's making you money and that you can either go on to, to build a business around what that original innovation was and, and continue to innovate or, um, or, or building it for exit. And I think throughout it was really passion, a lot of passionate people you really have to have an aligned team and you, you have to understand what your vision is and your mission. You know, once that purpose and, and the underlying philosophy of what you're doing to, to make a change, if you're not all aligned and on the same page, it's not going to work. Um, and that, you know, it's fine with one, you know, one person can have a vision, but when you've got, and I've always been involved as a co-founder. So it's, um, it's having three or four people. It's pretty easy to manage between two and three people. Adding a fourth is difficult. Anything over four is, it's really, really challenging um, mm. to, to maintain that vision. And, and, and I've seen some businesses that I helped along the way that had five or more co-founders. None of them, none of them made it. Okay, so less is more, common <laughs> yes. vision. Um, when it came to, why did they keep adding co-founders? Was it a particular expertise that they were looking for to get kind of, hey, help me out and I'll give you some equity? Or like what was going on there? Well, there's a bit of that, right? And and that's a, a thing I still see in startups is that they, they – uh, they think that they need, need some money. So they bring someone in in an equity role to be a part of the business as a partner, but they bring them in too early and they give up too much equity. Mm. Uh, so they, they'll take a small amount, 20, 40, 50 grand um, and give them 40, 45, sometimes over 50% of the business. Um, and that co-founder may not have the same vision and degree of passion or interest that the founder has. And, and I've seen that happen. And that, that usually leads to problems down the road. How do you make sure your visions are aligned? Is there a process that you would recommend or questions you can ask to make sure about that? Um, there is a, you know, there is a bit of a process and I, and I call that some, some spending some time together in a quiet mm. place. So you, okay. you, cause you can get caught up in the daily and if you've got two or three partners and, and, and this is something I, I do with my partners today is that we take every quarter and we step back, we go to a quiet place where there's no intrusions. We turn off all devices and we sit down and ask ourselves, the first key question that I think you have to do as a partnership, which is what would have to be true? So it really forces you to say, what would have to be true if the business did this or did that, or what would have to be true to grow to the next level? Mm. 
And those are your key strategy questions. And then, then after that, you know, you ask yourself, what would have to be true? Then you have to say, okay, so how are we going to play and where are we going to play? And how we're going to be play is re- how we're going to play is really important for entrepreneurs to be aligned with, because mm-hmm. there's basically when you talk about strategy, there's two overarching ways that you can play in a marketplace. It's hardball and softball. Canadian companies tend to play softball, and American companies, for example, tend to play hardball. And and it's something I've said to to many of the Canadian companies I've been involved with and, and started up is, is is don't think Canadian, think American. And so what do I mean by that? Are you by that saying that hardball is better than softball? Well, not always. It depends on what your vision is. It depends on what your vision is and and how you want to play. So hardball, a great example would be Facebook and and Google and a lot of these uh, tech startups out of Silicon Valley. They play hardball. They go to the very edges of what they're legally allowed to do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they work in gray spaces. And this is why Facebook has ended up in so many problems is because they kind of push that envelope a little bit too far. Yeah. Playing hardball doesn't mean you should cross a legal line because you absolutely should not. And you have to be aware of your ethics and you have to play the right way. But you also have to be able to take some risks and be take bold moves versus softball where you're going to play, where you're not really going to be aggressive against your competitors. You're going to follow your competitors rather than be a leader. And you don't spend as much time on the innovation side of things too. Interesting. I started thinking about baseball now (laughs) (laughs) and how I like to catch the steel and steal bases. (laughs) Exactly. So you're you're playing hardball. It's perfectly within the rules of the game and it's acceptable and it's okay. Right. So, Yeah. yeah. Are you looking to boost your business value beyond just increasing profit? Introducing the Business Value Amplifier, a revolutionary 10-week program designed to help you uncover proven methods to enhance your company's worth. Discover how to transition from feeling unsure about maximizing your business value to becoming a savvy operator who deliberately and methodically pulls the levers of value building. With the Business Value Amplifier, you can expect to take control of your business's growth and be intentional about enhancing its value. Whether you're planning to sell or simply want a more vibrant, predictable, and lucrative operation, this program is for you. Don't miss out on this opportunity to amplify your business's value in just 10 weeks. Go to blackstarwealth.com amplify and apply for the Business Value Amplifier today. That's blackstarwealth.com amplify. Your business will thank you. Um, a, a big part of what we wanted to talk about today was, was innovation. So I'd like to talk about it from like the 30,000 foot view first, meaning what is it? And why do I need to care about it as a small business owner? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and I, you know, it's critical for small businesses in, in Canada today, especially Atlantic Canada, to start mm-hmm. innovating. There's a lot of myths around innovation. A lot of people think it's sort of creative woo-woo stuff. Um, oh, it's all like it's all better. Is it all better mousetraps, Giles? Yeah, exactly. Hey, let's go put a bunch of stickies on a wall and talk about a better mousetrap, right? Like. <laughs> And, and that's where there's a lot of confusion around innovation. And there's also a, a, a lot of businesses assume that means adding new products, new services, technology, and it's absolutely not. In fact, one of the most uh, interesting parts of innovation is subtraction. What- okay, okay. 
That's cool. Yeah. I need to hear more about this. Less is more. Tell less me more. is tell me less more is about more. that, Giles. Yeah. So it there's so many technologies out today, and our first assumption, oh well, I I just gonna add this piece of software or that piece of software. I'm I'm gonna get a, a new server and I go to this company because I want to build an app. And well, if you sit down and talk to your customers, like act like not interview, not, not focus groups, not surveys type of thing. You actually go pick up the phone or physically go and visit them. Or today you can do it over, over Zoom or Google Meet, but actually have a conversation with them. What you might discover is that there are things you can take away that improves the business process, that makes it easier for them to buy products. A lot of the technologies that we put in place today, they actually get in the way of co consumer buying something. You know, it should be as simple as one click. Uh, your you know, customer service. You're yeah. thinking um, you're making me think back in the day, like a few years, even not that long ago, if I put something in my shopping cart, it wasn't easy to go back and continue shopping. No. And no. so to me, like that's a friction point, which I think that needed to be, in, uh, you know, everybody lets me go back now without too much work, but you know, all, or they, I go back, but they're not, they don't take me to where I left off. Like, no, all kinds don't. of friction points, like just what you're talking about. And a, and a lot of it is this this desire that we need to get your email address, we need to get your name because we're going to have to keep pumping out marketing messages to you down the road. And it's and mm -hmm. you know it's building brand loyalty, and and it's untrue. Um, consumers are not loyal to brands; they, they never really have been, um, and that's a myth. Um, Where did you come up with that, Giles? What's, well, what's the data? Yeah, I'm not the only one that thinks that. There's a lot of research that has come out of uh, places like DDBO and um, and other major agencies and Bain and Co. and showing that you know consumers will go for the price, especially where we're in weird markets right now. Um, they don't. They might feel some loyalty to you, but but not really, because if a better offer, offer comes along, they're going to take it. So they're not loyal. You know, that's how can you be loyal if you're are you going to pay $100 for a tire on your car when you can get one for $60 that's as good as or better than? Or even the same. Or even the same, right? So you're not going to you're not going to give them money just to give them money. Um, nobody does that. And if you're smart about your finances, and most entrepreneurs are, well, they're going to go where they can get the best deal. Right. Right. That's what you do. Um, you, we were talking a little bit about why it was important we innovate. So innovation is more than new products, new services. Sometimes yeah. it's about just a review of what we're currently doing and seeing if we can shift it, pivot it, change it to better serve the client. Um, but maybe we've got steps in there that don't need to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And there's like, there's 10 major types of innovation. Once, you know, and they start from your profit model. It's a great opportunity for small business, mid-sized businesses to, to figure out their profit model better. They might be leaving dollars on the table yeah. all the way through to adding products and services and improving customer service. And you can also do it on your finances. It can be work processes and workflows where you can innovate. So you, those are, those are internal innovations and external innovations. And internal innovations really help you refine your process, always with the goal of helping the customer. And they should, the, the, the types of innovation should be mixed with each other. So you, if you might be working on your profit model to improve it, you also want to work on your customer service model. Because if you're going to improve your profit margin, you want to be sure that you're still delivering value to the customer at the end of the day. Right? So you kind of mix and match the different innovation types. And again, so we talked about 
keeping up is innovation. What else, what, is there any other reason why I should, as a small business owner, be concerned about innovation? Yeah, well, aging population is one because um, we're getting older. We're not getting younger. And, and you know, the uh, demographers call Canada a, a super aging country. Um, I just said that today. Isn't that frightening? Yeah. Yes. So, you know, the companies that have traditionally thought, well, we can hire lots of youth and we don't have to hire people over 50. That's not the case anymore. They're going to absolutely have to hire people from starting their mid 40s uh, right into their 60s. And a lot of people need to and want to work into their 50s and 60s. Uh, they don't necessarily want to retire. Great skill sets, lots of experience. And the other side is immigration. And, you know, we passed the 40 million uh, mark in Canada just, just recently. And, you know, Atlantic Canada, you know, Nova Scotia surpassed a million people last year. We added 21,000 or something people just to Halifax alone. So all these immigrations present risks and threats, but they also present incredible opportunities. And for a long time in Atlantic Canada, for example, if you started a business, you pretty much knew what the size of your market was. Right? It was two and a half million people, wasn't really growing, net outward migration. You knew that your business could only grow to a certain level, right? And you figured out what that was, what your market opportunity was. And there's no real incentive to innovate, innovate because where were you really going to get growth, right? If you're right. good in your sector. And, and a lot of Atlantic Canadian companies are... Uh, export averse didn't understand how don't understand how to do it and, and they were nervous about exporting even into other provinces and and unfortunately we don't have really uh, helpful laws for businesses you know doing especially products exporting. yeah especially products like you look at beer and, and wine moving across into provincially so those barriers need to come down uh, for for businesses to grow and to add more value to the economy but in Atlantic Canada, there was not really an incentive to innovate. That is all changing. It has changed. Uh, new immigrants coming in from refugees to professionals like doctors and nurses um, and other entrepreneurs that are bringing net worth money in. So there's more foreign direct investment uh, and there's new business ideas coming in. So the market you didn't think you had to defend, you are going to have to defend. And if you're a, a, an aging uh, business owner and you're looking to get out of your business and sell your business, um, you're going to have to look at what you need to innovate to help make your business more attractive for, for investment. Absolutely. Yeah. I might have a program for that, Giles. However. Um, right, I think so. <laughs> yes. And so I want to dig a little bit further because you made a comment earlier about to be able to innovate externally in particular. Well, actually for both, right? We have to yeah. do get in gain a deeper understanding of our market or the people we think will buy our product and make sure they will and what that's what they yeah. want and all that stuff. And traditionally, we've seen this done more with like a, a survey or a focus group. And I feel like they're losing some of their steam um, in terms of being able to give you actionable information. Can you comment on that and then maybe talk about what is the new direction in, in research? Sure. I mean, surveys can still be very helpful and, and valuable, but one of the challenges with surveys, it's, it's very small in terms of a sample size. You're only going to reach X amount of people. And if you get one or 2% return uh, on survey results, uh, you know, that's a very small statistical sample size. And that's not really, doesn't really give you that view of what's 
the trends that are happening, what's going to go on in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Focus groups have um, have really become these incredibly boring, dull, and not really great ways to get insights out of customers. You've got a lot of bias going into it. Focus groups are often designed uh, for the confirmation bias or stakeholder bias of whoever wants to get an answer. So many times you see focus group questions and the approach designed to confirm what the business already thinks versus what the customer thinks. And that you see, like when you sit down and and it's someone asking a question, there's people watching from a two-way mirror. So people in the focus group, they know they're being watched. They know they're being filmed because you have to tell them that um, from, from an ethical standpoint. So it really creates a very weird environment um, that doesn't really work. And surveys, they're okay, but it's a tough to get the responses out of them and then to really take any meaning from them. So I think there's, there's two alternatives to this. One is to actually hold customer interviews. They call them user interviews or user research, um, UX research. That's a good form. Um, it's a challenge, but taking the time, actually going out, meeting your customers, especially as the entrepreneur or the owner of the business, don't turn it over to your marketing team alone. Um, you should be hearing those things because as a business owner, you have a stakeholder bias. You always do. And you need to get rid of that. And the only way to do that is to hear the painful truths from your customers. So you have to have those honest conversations with your customers. Take the time, do it, spread it over months if you have to. And the other way is to do digital research, and that's analyzing social media, the conversations in social media, looking at what happens there. And it's, that's called netnography. That's something I've, I've been doing for, um, for you know, over a decade now is, is that deep dives into social media to really understand what people are thinking. Because if you're observing and you're not asking a question, people are saying what they honestly think and feel. And you can learn so much more than if you're asking survey questions. And another thing, especially as we see more immigration into Atlantic Canada, well, Canada as a whole, we've got all these new cultures coming in. Mm. And if you're surveying a market where you have a, a large Asian um, community within, your, within your, your audience or your customer base, they answer surveys very differently from the way that North Americans might they often will answer questions because they think it's what you want to hear and they don't want to be controversial. Mm. And you, you find, yeah, go ahead. You're reminding me, I, I do this presentation about how, how, why you feel the way you do about money and what to do about it. And right. I did this presentation to the MBA class at St. Mary's, which is extremely multicultural. Yeah. And my question was, tell me about your first memory of money. And it was completely fascinating how it was different in every culture and what they attached importance to was completely different from North American culture. Yeah. So you're right about that bias that we can assume everyone is like us just because they live and do as we do versus, you know, there's that cultural piece that we, how do you find that out? Yeah, you, you, we got to have, to have some cultural awareness. I mean, fortunately, as a background in cultural anthropology, I can I can recognize those and, and sort of mm-hmm. see well the different the different views. But people view money very differently. They in view uh, investing very differently. Their relationship to money is very differently, just as their relationships to technology are very different. And they will respond. You know, Asian cultures and Nordic cultures tend to be what we call a type two culture. And those are cultures that think we first. So they'll think about what does my action have to do with my family 
and then my community and then my nation and my larger region. So they, they, and so they think about money in the same way. They don't think about building wealth for me. They think about building wealth for my family, for my future generations. In North American culture, it's um, it, mostly the US is a primary example and, and Canada is sort of a blend of type one and type two, but we tend to think me first. How does this benefit me? How does this help me? Then we think about family and then we think about our country or our region or community next. But we really focus on it from a me, me, me perspective versus a we, we, we perspective. Understanding that difference at a fundamental level has a huge impact on not only how your customers are going to buy from you, but how your business and brand will, will be seen in the marketplace. So very, very important. When I look at, um, you know, I, I've, I've come on to the client, the research what bandwagon, I probably should have done it way before, but in the last you know, <laughs> four or five years, I've come yeah. to recognize, uh, you know, I've been beat over the head with it enough that it's been very helpful. And I, I remember I did one, I guess it would be five or six years ago, and everything I thought my clients were cared about was wrong. Yeah. It was completely different. So that's why I, you know, I'm on this research bandwagon. And Giles, I know there's this perception that it's too expensive as a small business owner to engage in. Tell, like, I gotta think it's come down and it's not, and it's reasonable because you have a good package that's very reasonably priced. Yeah, no, I think, I, I think so. It's, you know, it's only just about four grand and, and, uh, and a business can learn so, so much so quickly. If you do surveys, it takes time to design them. It takes time to execute them, then to analyze them and take them back in. If you do fo face, uh, focus groups, that takes even longer. It can take months. Right? And a lot of your internal data that you have, even if you're using Google Analytics or a social media monitoring tool, like they only give you the surface stuff. They kind of, and they're not really that accurate either. Um, you know, like people think, well, I can see all my traffic and everything on Google Analytics. Well, Google Analytics misses between 15 and 20% of your audience traffic. So it can give you a little bit. Yeah, oh yeah, unless you, unless you pay to play with Google, like you're using AdSense, only then do you get richer data. But there's, uh, when you put a web analytics package right on your web server, then you get real data. Uh, and all of a sudden you learn a lot more. Um, and it's the same thing with social media monitoring tools. So this is where I go and do a deeper dive where I, I actually look at, okay, what are customers saying? What are the questions that the business wants answered? And how are consumers thinking differently from what the business thinks it does? And I can take out that stakeholder bias and the assumptions that are made and really dive deep into saying, okay, this is what customers actually want. This is where they're going. These are the trends. And I can look at it from, you know, a hyper-local perspective of just, you know, Halifax or Charlottetown or St. John's, and I can go all the way to Toronto, and then I can expand it out to, to Canada and the world. Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty of the internet. Yeah, and it's so fast, right? I use a number of analytics tools, you pull all the data in, I, I buy some bulk data, then I, I run the analytics tools over top. So I can, I can get something out. If it's a, a social media crisis or a main crisis, I can figure it out within a few hours. Um, if it's a, a, a bigger, like doing some market research, proving a product or finding a new market, um, then I can do that in one to three weeks. All done. Yeah. So give me the direct link, Giles. Give me the headline. I should do, how does research impact the innovation I want to do in my business? It, it gives you that look at the trends. It tells you, okay, my assumption is right or wrong. And it can tell you right away, okay, 
my assumption was this, but I actually need to go over here or I need to go over there. Or I sh this is my audience isn't what I think it was. Or these are my competitors that sometimes you don't know what a competitor, who your competitors really are. You think you know, but you may not even know them. Well, yeah, that's like the job to be done, right? It's the job to be done. I've, a number of times I had one great client in, in, in the U.S. and he told me, you know, he was in the banking industry. He said, here's my four main competitors. And we went away and we did the research and we came back and we said, yeah, these are four. But by the way, here's this fifth one. Um, who's getting into the space. Here's the marketing tools he's using, the sales approach and his sales and marketing strategy. Here's all the stuff you need to know about him. He went absolutely dead silent. And I thought, uh-oh, I've done something wrong here. And he said a bad word and really loud. And so I said, uh-oh. So what, what happened? He said, oh, well, I've been going out to lunch with the CEO of that bank for the last year, telling him everything we're doing. <laughs> uh, and no idea this was his competitor. <laughs> Oh, Giles, that's, that is such a great story. Do you have any other top of mind stories about small businesses that did the research, which led to greater market share, more profit, something of that nature? Yeah, so we did one in the tourism industry a couple of years ago, and they were like, they were focused on this, uh, this whole sort of uh, family vacation world and people want to come in with their campers and they want to hang out. And I can't of course, say who the client is, but um, we did the research and said, you're missing in this whole market, their adventure people, they want to, uh, they would love, they don't want to really bring their kayaks and their canoe. So if you could build a whole place for them to uh, have a camping ground and focus on kayaks and canoeing, there's this whole market segment that, um, that you're missing. And so one of the tourism operators, they heard this in the research that we did, and they went out and they, they built kayak racks and canoe racks. They bought a few kayaks and canoes to rent out to people, and they built a small campground uh, off of where they had cabins and thought they wanted campers, and, and they literally doubled their revenues that next summer. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. whole market that they, they would not have even known about if we hadn't done that research. So the research showed them something. Then they took those insights, built a product slash service, yeah. which means to me that is the execution part, which cannot be forgotten. You know, yes, yeah, that's right. You know, the secret, the secret isn't just visualize it; it is actually do some stuff to get it to come to fruition. Yeah. So, uh, and that's where the benefits. They took data and actioned on it and doubled their sales. Wow, yeah. that's impressive. Yeah. You know, and, and that was a, an investment of a few thousand dollars and they made that back in spades, you know, in, in just over a year. So, you know, and, and they continue on that business path. So it's really the research figures, you might think you know where to play, but you don't really know where to play. So it tells you where to play and confirms where to play. And it also tells you how to play, which are two really key questions when you're going to do an innovation and you're going to do a strategy, right? So you got to know where to start. It really makes me think that that investment in the research component can save you tons of money yep. if you're you're building the wrong thing for the wrong people. Exactly. Yeah. You make an assumption that you know a market. A lot of businesses use their historical data. And so they're only using their own data. Mm. And your own data is always lagging. You're looking back at the last quarter, two quarters before what, what happened two and three years ago. And you know, there's something weird that's really messed with all the data sets that we have right now What's for all that? companies. It was called a pandemic. 
Right. Oh, I've heard of that. <laughs> and, and it totally changed everything. So now, you know, we're not even fully out of it. And the markets are doing really weird things. Like technically right now, we should be in or have been in a recession for a few months. Right. right? Like housing prices are doing weird things. We've got inflation going on. Consumers are doing weird things. Companies aren't letting go of as many people as we think. Uh, everybody's talking about artificial intelligence, which is complete silliness. There's absolutely no evidence to say that AI is impacting business at all. It's way, it's we're only a few months into this chat GPT. Uh, it's not changing anything. In fact, companies are hiring more graphic designers and more developers than they used to hire before ChatGPT. So, yeah. So the whole market, everything's changed. So all that historical data that you relied on and anything you thought about pre-pandemic and during has now completely and utterly changed. So well, it, that is another reason research is so critical today. I think if you look at yourself as a person, I, I, I know that uh, many people I talk to, how we function as consumers, how we function, even in terms of going out to eat or who we hang out with has changed. Our behaviors have changed. So I think you're, I, I believe you're hundred percent correct on that. And we, I still think it's evolving as well. I don't think we know. Oh, yeah. any of the we're answers. not, we're not going to know, you know, the, the idea of globalization, all the rest of it, you know, we've got this stupid war in, in Ukraine that's been waged by, by an insane imperialist uh, thinking guy, Putin. Um, and then you've got changing consumer habits. You even look at Generation Alpha, right, which is coming up after behind Generation Z. So they're in their late teens and their early 20s. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not buying smartphones. They're buying flip phones. Are you kidding and, me? Really? No, seriously. Yeah, that's big market for flip phones. They don't want the smartphones. And you Why? know what else? Because they don't want that stuff in their face all the time. They're looking at, they're looking at their brothers and their sisters and they're looking at their parents and they're going, no way, I don't yeah. want this. You know, they're, they're stressed out. They're always staring at their phones. They're missing out on life. And they're also buying books, right? Like they love buying print books. And, and oddly enough, there's something called uh, TalkBook, which is uh, out of TikTok. And it's a recommendation of physical books to read. They're, they're spending time getting into book clubs. They're going away. They're buying physical books at the store and sitting down and spending time reading them. They want less digital engagement. Um, and they're really good at um, getting rid of notifications and bring it back to real life. So there's this, you know, there's a trend towards wanting real life experiences. You know, research I've done for in the tourism sector and, and physical products shows that uh, people want experiences now. They're, they're yearning to get less digitally connected than, than what we think that they they wanted to have in the past. Dallas, you have officially blown my mind. <laughs> you know, so much of innovation, so much of where we are in business today is counterintuitive. You know, it's like right. that subtraction idea. You wouldn't think to subtract. We're always taught to add, but no, you got to subtract. Markets move in different ways than what we assume. And, you know, we're, our assumptions are all based on our lived experience, our business experience as entrepreneurs, what's worked for us in the past. And we use that to try to navigate the future. But if you listen to the stories that people tell online, which is what I do, like stories is how we live our lives. That's We've always done that for hundreds of thousands of years. It started around a campfire, you know, a million years ago, and we've never stopped telling stories since. And that's marketing is stories, sales is stories. You know, marketing is telling stories at a distance and sales is telling stories right up front. We love stories and that's what we do. So you have to, if you listen to the stories, then you really hear what people want because they'll tell you the story. We love to tell each other stories. 
So Giles, how do people get a hold of you? Because we could talk all day. What's the best way for someone to reach out to you? So much fun. Well, my, my email is Giles, G-I-L-E-S, at Nord uh, Spark, N-O, uh, Nord, N-O-R-D, Spark, uh, dot com. That's uh, one way to reach me. And, and Nord Sparks with an X on the end is uh, dot com is, uh, is my website. Oh. And I'm on LinkedIn too, and I'm on Twitter, so you can find me in all those places. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Giles. And I think the real bottom line here is that the market is changing and you need to do your research. Thank you for listening to The Real Bottom Line. This show is produced by Black Star Wealth. Executive producer, Wendy Brookhouse. To learn more about the show or to contact us, go to blackstarwealth.com.